What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of new writing forms, a writer's journey, and reading habits. Our first guest is Professor Steve Graham, and we'll discuss new writing forms. Then we'll talk with Ariane de Beauvoisin, an author, about her journey to become a writer. Our last guest will be Marnay Isaacson, and we'll chat about different reading habits. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life. Along with our interviews, we'll have a book review of I Am Human and take a glimpse at this day in history. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. A lot of educators today, including myself, are talking about text complexity. The basic assumption here is that as readers grow, they need to be able to read and comprehend increasingly complex texts. Without a doubt, becoming a better reader is an important step in the literacy development of all children. However, as an educator, I have a very strong concern that we are measuring text complexity in the wrong way. Since the 1920s, we've been quantifying text complexity through readability formulas. The most familiar are the Fontes and Pinnell, the Lexel, and the Accelerated Reader Rankings. While leveling books in this way can be helpful for students as they begin to understand their own reading abilities, it's important to be clear that these levels are not the only way that we should judge the complexity of texts. Because these formulas rely only on a limited view of a text, and they don't take into account the reader themselves, these numbers should only be used as a starting place for book selection. Since no experimental studies have established standards that reveal the optimal level for learning, comprehension, interest, and efficient reading, we cannot rely on formulas to help us find the right books for the right readers. As an educator, I'm against using any type of system that forces children to read books that fall into a narrow category of their perceived reading ability. Preventing students from checking out a library book because it's not on their level, or not allowing them to receive credit for reading a book that's above their level, only prevents children from experiencing the same freedom that we have as adult readers to choose books that are right for us. So let's help kids find the books they enjoy and put the use of readability formulas in their correct place because complexity, while important, is not something we should use to prevent kids from reading. And that's a little advice from Rachel's World. Rachel's World The way we write physically has changed drastically over the ages. We've gone from hieroglyphics etched into stone to ink on scrolls to typewriters and computers. What we write about and how we express our thoughts has also changed over time. Today, I have in studio Steve Graham, a college professor that studies how writing develops. We're going to chat about new forms of writing. Welcome, Steve. Hi, how you doing? I am doing so well, and I am excited to chat with you today. 
One of the things that I think that's interesting in this new world of technological literacies that we are dealing with is that a lot of people talk about writing and the forms of writing that a lot of our children do today, particularly with social media and other texting forms of communication. And a lot of people think that they might be destroying writing or they might be taking us down a wrong path. I know you have some insights along those lines. So to start out today, Steve, tell us a little bit about what do you think about these new technological forms of writing? I think it's great. You know, we're in the middle of a revolution around writing and how we compose. And it's opened up a lot of new avenues. And I've never, in any point in my life, seen kids so excited about writing. They don't often think about what they're doing as writing, but that's what it involves. When they tweet, when they text, when they're on social media, when they're on uh, fan sites where they're sharing their ideas, and sometimes that's in text, sometimes it's auditory text and visuals, um, they're writing. And so I can never remember a time where so many people in so many places, in so many venues, are in the process of sharing their written ideas with others. I think it's a great thing. I truly appreciate your optimism because I think sometimes people really look down on these times as a kind of negative aspect that we're shortening our language or we're not spelling correctly or we're doing, you know, grammar is going by the wayside. So in this wonderful sense of optimism that you bring to this, what would you say to maybe some of these naysayers that are looking at these forms of writing as not quite as highbrow or important as some of the other forms of writing we're used to? I think you hit the nail on the head, so to speak, when you said these forms of writing. I think it's really important to realize that we write in many different ways for many different audiences. And so we have these different registers. Same thing when we speak. I speak differently to my child than I do to a friend. I speak differently in class than I do at a restaurant. Uh, I speak differently um, in a really formal situation than I do in an informal one. And I learn how to do that. Um, Almost all of us do, and we do it successfully. So it's the same thing with writing. There's different forms that are appropriate for different writing situations and different writing medias. And students are more than capable of learning to do that. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not slippage between one and the other. Just like when we speak, sometimes I'll, you know, kind of slip into the vernacular, so to speak, in a formal situation. But, you know, I'm quickly out of that. And it actually, I think, makes the formal situation a little bit more interesting. So I think a lot of this concern that, you know, writing is going to use a proverbial term to hell in a handbasket because we've learned new ways of composing and we see slippage between the various forms, I don't really think is a valid uh, criticism. Um, You know, I think people write more now for more purposes. And uh, I think that's going to be a good thing in the long run. I would agree with you totally, Steve. I think that in the long run, these many different forms are just going to make it more intriguing and uh, allow us to communicate in a lot of different ways. 
I'd like to explore that sense of audience and context, because I think that that's one of the challenges with technology, at least as I see it, that sometimes it's hard to tell what the form and audience is. And so those forms of slippage come because there aren't as clear barriers sometimes between these forms of writing. So how would we address some of that with our children to help them understand what is appropriate, uh, what is needed, and maybe these different kinds of audience forms? So I think one of the things that's really important here is that one of the reasons we kind of have this slippage of, you know, speaking in one vernacular when we probably should be writing in another is there's a time issue. And so Think about something like tweeting, texting, or email. Sometimes we let something out of our hands and, you know, out into the world before we should have, um, because there's this sense of, um, you know, we can do it now, we can do it quickly, we're uh, automatically connected. And so I think one of the things that's very important is helping our kids realize that once they write something, whether it's for class, whether it's for a social media site, whether it's a tweet, we want to step back from it for a second and think about, is this really what we wanted to say? Is this really what we want out there? And especially today, because when something gets out there, it can get out there very broadly. And I don't think kids always realize that. So I think we want to make sure that our children realize, you know, kind of this does go more broadly than you might think. And we can step back and think about what we're gonna say. And I think that's a good thing in any kind of writing. Another point that I would, would like to make on this is we can look at these different forms of communication as a teaching moment. So for example, we could take an email um, that's been created by one or more students in class, and then we could talk about that between friends, and we could then talk about how we would need to change that email if we were sending it to an adult, say another teacher or the principal or a parent. Because one of the things that we want kids to know is what's appropriate in different kinds of registers. Um, I think that's particularly important. So those would be two suggestions that I would have right at the start. I think both of these suggestions really kind of boil down to that quintessential revision and editing process that's so much a part of our writing process as we go through. Would you see it as that way? Is it, Are these really our revision and editing that we need to take time to learn how to do those pieces in our social media writing? I actually would expand it to include both the planning in and the revision and editing in. So let me give an example that's fairly concrete. Um, think about speech to text, okay? So now when we have you know, our smartphones, you see people constantly talking into them, making a few modifications and sending out a message. And so what they're doing is they're treating writing like they treat speaking. It's extemporaneously for the most part. If we went back to like the 1960s and we took a look at kind of the um, you know, current technology of the day, dictaphones, what you found is you had people in the business world who would dictate um, messages that were then you know, typed up by a secretary or another worker and then sent on. 
when you looked at people who did this for a living, they spent 60% of their time planning in advance what they were going to say. They were careful about what the message was going to be. And so I think it's not just a revision process. It's also a planning process on the front end. Now, that doesn't mean once we have that message, we shouldn't stop and look what we're saying. You know, we shouldn't stop and take a look at what we've just said and make necessary revisions and make sure it's going to, the, to who we intended. Um, I suspect most of your listeners will probably have, have had an experience where they've sent the wrong text to the wrong person and not always with good results. I like that sense of we need to plan and then execute and revise and think back. I think the timing, particularly of social media and text and the speed of things doesn't always allow us that time to think and being able to just take a step back and really think about that is is an important part of this communication process. So I'm really grateful that you're emphasizing that for us today. As we close up our conversation today, with all of this new world of media and all of these new forms, what other things might you recommend to us that you think we need to pay attention to? Well, so one of the things that I would like to say is, um, I think it's important to look at what the positive end of these new forms of writing um, mean for us. So one of the ways of thinking about this is just think of something like word processing. All of a sudden you can change what you write fairly easily. Um, Revision is so much easier with word processing. You have accompanying tools like grammar checkers and spell checkers that help you out. Soon we're going to have on a more broad basis and hopefully a better basis, speech to text and text to speech um, synthesis so that we can hear what we have written and we can say what we write. And that provides new avenues for people to produce text. We also can now easily integrate into our writing um, things that we want to say vocally. Uh, we can bring in pictures and text. This opens up a lot of new ways of communicating and making better compositions. And so I think instead of seeing the challenges that maybe grammar is going to not be quite as precise as we might like all the time, or you know our kids won't spell as well, some of these problems are going to take care of themselves as technology gets better at spotting things like spelling miscues and grammar miscues and helping us correct them. It already does that. It's not perfect, but it's much better than it was 20 years ago, and it makes writing a lot easier for everyone. So I think these tools are going to be a great boon in terms of students' writing and adult writing uh, over, the long, over the long term. Steve, thank you so much. I really appreciate your optimistic view of this because I think it's a great way to look at it. The, the more we write and the more we embrace these forms of writing, the more we're going to be able to communicate. And that can only make us better as human beings, I think, as we connect and write to each other in all of these different forms. Thank you so much for your time today, Steve. And thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Steve Graham is a professor in the Division of Leadership and Innovation in Teachers College. Next, it's story time with a book review of I Am Human by Susan Verde. Hi, my name is Kelly Coons, and I'd like to talk to you about one of my favorite books. 
It's called I Am Human, A Book of Empathy, written by Susan Verdi and illustrated by Peter H. Reynolds. This book follows the adventures of a young, unnamed boy as he learns what it means to be human along the way. The author presents different traits and experiences that we have as humans, both good and bad. She begins by listing the good, such as, I'm finding my way and choosing my own path on this incredible journey. I have a feeling of wonder. I am amazed by nature. I find joy in friendships. I am human. But then the author switches tones to the bad things we experience by saying, But being human means I am not perfect. I can hurt others, and I can be hurt too. I can be fearful of things I don't yet understand, and I have a heavy heart when I feel sadness. I am human. After this very real, albeit negative, section, the author transitions to how we can overcome the bad or hard things. The boy says things like, But then I remind myself that because I am human, I can make choices. A poor choice can become a better choice with thoughtfulness. And I can choose not to fight, but instead to listen and find common ground. Verdi uses the young boy to teach about complex topics in such a simple way. This book can be understood by children because of the simple language used to present these topics. But it is impactful even for adults because some wording prompts deeper thought. For example... The author says, I can treat others with equality and be fair. While on the surface this can be easily understood by children, I think the author is trying to express a deeper meaning that most children may not understand at first. This phrase is more applicable to adults because their experiences with equality or inequality cause them to react differently than a child would. I think this book can and should be used with children of all ages because it shows them that their feelings of fear, pain, sadness, and excitement are all valid. However, careful consideration should be given to the maturity of the audience because that will determine the extent of the conversation that can be had. I also want to take a moment to praise the illustrations done by Peter Reynolds. The text of this book is beautiful, but the illustrations add a completely new dimension to the book's meaning. He uses ink, watercolor, and tea to create the illustrations, and wow, do the colors just pop on the page. Reynolds' illustrations are perfectly fit for children. They have an effortless balance between enough detail to amaze adults, but also enough playfulness to draw in children. I seriously could not stop smiling while reading this book. I was just so in awe of the illustrations. The use of both warm and cool color palettes add greater dimension. For example, the book starts with a warm array of orange, yellow, and red with splashes of cooler tones. Then during the second section, it completely shifts to cooler purples, blues, and grays. He concludes by returning to a warm palette again, but this time with splashes of green. The illustrations echo the transition between good and bad experiences. Reynolds also takes full advantage of the white space on the page and uses it to add emphasis to the text and illustrations. The illustrations are very age-appropriate and depict scenes that children could actually experience. On one of my favorite pages, the words, I can act with compassion and lend a helping hand, are accompanied by an illustration of the boy carrying a bag of groceries for an elderly woman. And that's just one example of how Verde and Reynolds work to bring everything together in this book. I would highly recommend and encourage parents and teachers to check out this wonderful book and share it with the children and other adults in their lives. Everyone has their own path physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Today, we're on the phone with author Ariane de Beauvoisin to talk about her journey to become a writer. 
Welcome, Ariane. Thank you so much. It's great to be on. You have approached writing in such a unique and wonderful way, and you bring a very unique spirit to all of this. So to start out today, as as your journey as a writer, tell us, how did this all begin? (laughs) Uh, Well, interesting, uh, because I never set out to be a writer. Um, I did know when I was young, I loved books and I loved writing. And my parents, I grew up in more of a conventional sort of family that very much valued education and the safe route and finding a safe job and getting married and doing what was expected of me. And of course, as a young child, I wanted my, the attention of my parents and the love of my parents. And so I, I did that. And I sort of parked my spirit to the side and I went off and had a big external life. I got a great degree. I had a Stanford MBA. I then came to New York and I worked in the corporate world for 12 years, you know, pursuing a very big career and realizing slowly that this was not the right ladder that I was climbing. And I had this external life and this internal life and they started not being integrated in any way. And I remember waking up, you know, in my early thirties, my intuition would speak loudest in the morning and it would say things like, Ariane, you're, you're in the wrong job. Ariane, you're in the wrong body. I was a good 50 pounds overweight. Ariane, you're sleeping with the wrong guy. And it was just like my intuition was getting louder and louder and louder. And I thought, well, what do you mean? I've got everything the world's told me to go after. I've climbed the ladder. I've got, the, I've, got, I've got everything. And yet the truth was I felt very empty on the inside. And my, I definitely ignored my spirit. I parked my soul, even though I could feel that my soul was sad. And so I got down on my knees, prayed to everyone and anyone who was listening out there. And I just asked for courage. And I asked to be shown the way. I said, show me the way, show me the way, show me the way. And so on top of that, I broke off an engagement. I left the big job. You know, I was, I was running a $500 million venture capital fund investing in internet companies. So it wasn't small. And I left and I jumped into sort of the unknown, knowing what it was that mattered, which was I needed to make a difference. I needed to contribute. I needed my spiritual path to be in the world and not sort of in the closet. I needed to to become one person as opposed to these two selves that were exhausting. I went traveling. I got back to reading. I got back to writing. I got back to being in connection with other people as opposed to just the me, me, me world that I had created. And I started interviewing people who'd gone through life changes because that's what I was going through. And I, you know, the very first book I put out, never knowing that I would ever write a book was a combination of a thousand interviews that I did with people who had gone through all different types of life change. Some were getting divorced, some were getting married, some were having a kid, some were had lost a parent or going through a diagnosis. And I, I was fascinated by why some people change and some people don't, why some people get through a change and some people never do. So that was my first book. I've never taken a writing class. I think I think I would stop writing if I actually took a writing <laughs> class. It would probably tell me that I wasn't a writer in some ways. But I, I write from the heart. I write as a human. I write as someone who's gone through deep personal experiences. And then I go find other humans to hear their stories. And I, I look for what is similar and I look for what can help people. Because I feel we, we all start from scratch. I'm the only person going through this. I'm the only one who's doing that. So that was the first foray into writing. I, and, I, I love it. Yeah. I, I mean, and thank you so much for being so honest and open about your journey because 
as you talk about your journey, it it makes me kind of sad because I think oftentimes when we talk about art or art making of some form, it often becomes less important um, than other things in our lives. And I think oftentimes parents will talk to their children and say, oh, you don't want to be a writer or you don't want to be an artist or you don't want to be a musician. You can't make money doing that. You can't support a family doing that. And I think that that's really sad that sometimes we deny that kind of basic artistic self that we have. Yeah, I heard all of those things. And I made choices that, you know, they they certainly took me off a path. You know, the, the, the thing I would say is that the path that I took in my 20s has certainly informed what I'm doing now in my 30s and 40s because I, I had to go through it myself to be able to understand people, to help human behavior. You know, now I, I do everything from help coach people on life skills that they haven't learned when they were children or life skills to be able to make a life change or just to be able to be happier or to feel again or to feel like the heart is fulfilled as opposed to empty even though the external world can look exactly like they ever wanted to. And I mean, it's from that that, you know, my, my latest project is our, our children's books now, which again, I never in a million years thought I would ever do. I've obviously had a child of my own now who's four, but every, every adult that I ever meet, it's sort of what happened in their childhood is defining. You know, there's a famous doctor called Bruce Lipton who says, you know, perceptions acquired by the age of six become the dominant programs that shape the character of an individual's life. Like that's, that, that's it from a neuroscientist, neurosurgeon. And it became so clear to me that, you know, I, I could certainly keep and I continue to help uh, write and speak and coach to grownups. But the sooner we can sort of, you know, build that up in our, our little humans, the better it would be for them and for the world and for parents. I appreciate so much that you're passionate about speaking to children in that way, because I think that that is so important. I couldn't agree with you more. But in this journey, too, what what has been a little different about writing for children for you? Has there been some changes or some things that you've had to do differently? Well, of course, I mean, the, the biggest one is actually illustrating kids' books, um, which I was definitely told I was not an artist. I was definitely told I couldn't draw. I still do stick figures with my son. And I, you know, I had to trust someone else to take concepts, whether it's, you know, the life skill of courage or forgiveness or telling the truth or taking a deep breath and kind of trusting my intuition that this is what I needed to put on paper that would back up the words. I also looked for someone who could help me make things rhyme better. You know, some people are just amazing at getting things to rhyme. So what was beautiful with this project is that it was more of a collaborative project. I certainly came up with the themes and the skills and the content, but I had to ask for help. This was a team effort. You know, I have two other women, one's in South Africa, the other's in Seattle. I'm in New York. And it's just been this sort of circle of sweet generosity between three women who want to give something back to the world and to the children and to parents who are looking for this kind of content. That that certainly comes out in the books, this wonderful joy that the three of you bring to, to the table. The one other thing I love about your books is that you also express these emotions in poetic form. So why did you choose that form? Why maybe not just a prose form or a story that's more narrative? Why, why did you pick poems? 
Yeah, you know, I'd say half of the the poems in Giggles and Joy rhyme and the other half don't. Um, I, I liked poems and I also looked at the the science behind rhymes and poems and how children learn. And there's a lot to be said about how children remember things. Like, you know, I've had kids recite me entire poems in the Giggles and Joy books that I'm just stunned by. And there's something about the rhyme and the sound that I think is is important for children. Um, you know, I'm not a scientist, so I can't speak to it specifically, but child development people certainly urged me into that, that direction because of the way the child learns. I believe not only doing things with words, but doing things with sounds and sounds that resonate um, also build up the learning capacity of a child. And to put very colorful, fun, beautiful illustrations, you're kind of going to all three. You're going to the visual, to the auditory, and to the kinesthetic. That to me is the key there, is that you engage all the senses. You engage the sound senses, the visual senses, all of these types of things going in together. And that just makes a more emotional impact in my estimation. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and to me, it's sort of the the emotional world of a child is... It's it's so beautiful and it, and it's there and it's like how how do you how do you engage that uh, the story like you know we have books and books and we go to the local library and we take fifty books out of the time and most of them are stories and that's wonderful and they they engage the imagination they engage the mind I really wanted to engage the emotional and the spiritual side of of children with the these giggles and joy books. And I think you succeeded greatly with that, particularly, oh, particularly with the illustrations and, and the poems. I just think they worked so well together. But where is this journey going into the future? What, what's coming up next for you? Where, where is the journey taking you? You know, you can only ever see behind one door. You know, I, I pray sometimes that I can see behind door number 34, but I feel like the universe goes, here's the door, you know, this is what's next for you. So a couple of things. I was fortunate enough to be invited to do a TED Talk um, on three life skills that uh, kids need today. So that's coming out in the fall. Very exciting. Um, I am doing an online course for parents or nannies or caregivers or teachers of any kind to just help the parents with the life skills um, you know, these are beautiful contributions for kids, but it's the parents that need to also be uplifted. Like, how do you practically teach intuition to your children? How do you practically teach letting go or change when something big changes in their lives? So I'm doing that. It's going to be easy. That's also coming out in the fall. Um, and you know what? I feel I'm being guided. Like I've had parents call up and say, I just need an hour with you. Or, you know, me and my husband, we just need to ask you 10 questions because we don't know who to turn to. So, you know, I'm not going with the sort of big grand, this is going to be big and huge because I've had the big and huge in the past and that's not necessarily where the impact happens. To me, I, I, I'm, I'm available. I'm open. I'm being guided. I'm, today I'm on your show, and that's where I need to be. Well, I am so grateful that today you are on our show because exactly. I was so, it's so wonderful, and I appreciate you sharing your journey with us. It, it is amazing how these journeys take us in the right direction and how much they allow us to share our own spirit with the world and to impact the world in very fundamental ways, and particularly the lives of children in very fundamental ways. Absolutely. And you know, as a writer, there's always a couple of other books that are half written on my computer, so... I'll tell you about those and I'll Good. be on the show. Okay, 
sometime in the future. That's good. That's good. We'll we'll keep you on. We'll keep you on the list, and we'll see those coming out and get you back because I I will in very much enjoy continuing to share this great journey with you, Arian. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Ariane de Beauvoisin is the author of the book, The First 30 Days. Now, let's take a look back in history and examine some exciting events that happened on this date, May 4th, through the years. Every day, we have the opportunity to try new things, learn, grow, and explore. But as the old wise saying goes, those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it. If we had a time machine, what could we have witnessed today in history? Why don't we head back to the time where the North American continent was being settled by the Europeans? Historical legend says that on May 4th in 1626, the Native Americans sold the island of Manhattan for only $24 in cloth and buttons. The settlers' purchase gained a huge profit. The approximate land value for Manhattan, as of 2014, is now $1.4 trillion. If we jump ahead in time and cross the Atlantic Ocean, we'd see the French debut of the first folding umbrella in 1715. This became a mini cultural revolution in Paris. Heavy rain no longer prevented the rich and fashionable from strolling the streets of Paris because their umbrellas could now fold to become small enough to fit inside their pockets. A few years later in America, the relationship between Britain and her colonies grew more contentious. In 1776, the 13 colonies would sign a declaration of independence from Britain. But who declared independence first? Well, little Rhode Island became the first to declare independence on May 4th, almost three months before everyone else followed suit. Skipping much further down the timeline, we arrive in 1904. At this time, if someone wanted to send a package on a boat from Spain to California... That package would have to go all the way around the tip of South America before it could land safely on the West Coast. That's a long trip. That's why, on this day, President Theodore Roosevelt began the United States construction on the Panama Canal between the two vast oceans. Now let's look at 1929. It's the early beginnings of the Great Depression and the world's economic crisis. However, something particularly charming happens on May 4th. Audrey Hepburn is born. She would grow up to become an iconic movie star, popular for movies like Roman Holiday and Breakfast at Tiffany's. In 1930, Mahatma Gandhi, a non-violent civil rights activist for India, is arrested by the British. In 1970, Ohio National Guardsmen opened fire on students at Kent State University who were protesting the Vietnam War. They killed four students and wounded nine others. In 1979, Margaret Thatcher became the first ever female Prime Minister of Britain. Star Wars fans wished her well, saying, May the 4th be with you, cementing the phrase an unofficial holiday into pop culture. And now we've reached today, May 4th, 2019. What will you make happen today? As an adult, how long does it take you to develop a new habit? It is hard to establish a new pattern or way of thinking, especially when you may be set in your ways. 
It's a lot easier when you are taught good habits from a young age. Literacy expert Marnay Isaacson is in the studio with me today to help us delve into creating good reading habits with our young children. One of the things I get often asked is, how can I help my child be a good reader? And I think that's a really general question, but I think there's some specifics that we can delve into. Yes. And I think your experience and expertise can can really help us understand about how can we help our children be good readers. So what's a starting tip that you'd like to give us about being a good reader? Be a living demonstration of a good reader. Always have a book you're reading or a magazine. Have them see that that is what living is, uh, as part of living, is having always a good book and that you're talking about books and ideas with your kids. And so they see that, and that's, that's the way we go about. So that is a big beginning. And then another one is time for reading and discussion. Um, if those children are so busy with so many things they never have time to read, um, that is way too bad. So put that as a priority, family. I know families who uh, everybody gets around for an hour and they do their homework, they read, uh, and it can be a quiet time, but then it's that community of learners that are together. But you need time for discussion, too, that curiosity and wonder and finding out things and where could we find this out and going to the library and searching the internet, guessing before you go to a dictionary, guessing before you go to the answer. That is a very good way to pique interest and to have focus and interest. So um, so here's a word we don't know. What could it be? Look at all of the clues around it and see if we can guess it. And then go to the dictionary to verify, confirm, reject, but not just say what it is. Always go having guessed before. Things like that. And I think that's a really interesting thing because I think sometimes as good readers, as an adult, we don't necessarily break down our strategies or habits in a way that um, we can show to our children. But if we can kind of think about that as, okay, what if I encountered a word I didn't know? As a good reader, what would I do? And how can I show my children that this would be the steps I would take? I would look at the context clues. And if I couldn't figure it out from there, I would go here. And here's how I teach children to do that. Good. Let's listen. Say blank where the word is. So you read along the sentence, and here's this hard word. Say blank. Actually, physically, blank the word blank, and then read around it, and then that, what could fit in there? What would make sense there? Even cover it up so you don't look at the letters and sounds, because if you can come up with a word that would make sense there, it doesn't have to be the exact word. Uh, And then you can say, is that right? Have I guessed the meaning? And then I can go look it up and verify or reject or fine-tune the definition, the meaning that I got from it. That's a really great strategy because I think sometimes when we see the word, we feel like we need to 
decode it and understand it. But if we put the blank in there and say, we're going to take it out, that helps us understand the context clues. Let's keep in mind what reading is. It's not looking at words and turning pages. It's getting the meaning. And if I can pick up the meaning, I don't have to know exactly every single word. I can do it. I can figure out the meaning. In fact, ask any speed reader. There is no way they even see all the words. But they see enough that they infer the meaning. And we need to help them understand to infer meaning. And I think that's part of the... The trick, though, is that we need to constantly be monitoring ourselves and we need to train our – particularly our students in their academic reading to monitor themselves because if you aren't getting the meaning, then there's a problem. Then there's a problem. So you need to go back and And do something. And you need to be sure you have evidence for the meaning you've come up with. You know, I don't care what you say. A chair is not a swimming pool. You've got to have evidence for why you've come up with what you've come up for. Okay, so here is a um, kind of a little template for working with a child. Oh, great. Okay. And this was uh, developed by Vygotsky, a great Russian child psychologist. Um, And it's come to be called the gradual release of responsibility in the learning. And I'll, I'll say basically what it is, and then I'll go back and show you how that fits into reading. Okay. The first step is I do, you the parent, I do, or you the teacher, you watch, child, student. So I do it, you watch. And it's not just watching, but it's processing. So as a parent, I'm saying, okay, what did you see me do? And you, as you read, you would think aloud. Okay. The next step is I do, you help. So let's do this together. You help me do it. So I'm still more in charge, but you are helping me so that you are learning to do this like I am. The third one is you do it, and I'll help you. So it's just a switch of dominant. So now the child's in charge, and you're just there coaching and helping and asking a question. Did you think of this? What about this? And you're helping them come to it. You help. And the fourth one is, you do, I watch. So now we're at the reverse. I watch. And this is what I saw you do, and way to go. Uh, Too often we move from the idea of I do and you watch to now you do it and I'll watch you. Those intermediate steps are very important where you do this. Now, how does that look when you're having a reading session? Okay. I do, you watch. Read aloud to the child. And they can follow, they can watch you or they can just listen. And, but you think aloud. So this, I'm not sure what this is. I think it's this. You are monitoring. You're showing that metacognitive awareness as you're reading, you're showing your thinking as you read, that you are not just looking at words and turning pages. You are thinking, and you need to let them see that thinking. Okay, in the I do, you help, and the you do, I help, both of those, just change of who's more in charge, 
is shared reading. So we do things like read aloud together, or I read a paragraph, you read a paragraph. But all the way along, we are also doing think aloud. So the child's thinking aloud, showing their thinking. As a parent, I'm showing my thinking and we're thinking aloud, that shared experience on the same text. And then the You Do, I Watch is independent reading. Now, the I Watch can be later, so they've read it. Now tell me about it. What do you think? And get them into the thinking processes that we've talked about earlier. Why do you think that happened? And So that you're... um, and and you can also just have them think aloud of what they've gotten out of this. Um, so those are some tips. I do, you watch. I do, you help. You do, I help. You do, I watch. And I think that strategy is really important and particularly this sense of saying aloud what we do because I don't think we often make that visible. And it might seem odd and tricky for us as adults when we do it. But I know I've done that with students, particularly struggling readers. I I say, okay, if I was reading this, this is what I would do. And I talk through yes. what my brain is doing. Yes, exactly. And that is so helpful. It is. It is. We can't assume that they pick that up. Okay, I really need to say this, too. Remember when uh, in earlier sessions, if you heard them about the layered reading, before, during, and after, you can teach this as young as a preschooler. So I take a little picture book, and let's look at, let's, what are we going to learn in this book? We preview. So we finish. Now, what is it we most want to learn here? And so we set a purpose. And then we go through and... Of course, I'm reading it to the child, but I'll stop off and, what are you picturing? What did you, what did you just figure out? So they're downloading as we go along. What questions do you have right now? Here's a question I have. What question do you have? So that you're, mo- you're modeling that same kind of processing as though you were reading a sophisticated text for graduate school. Same kinds of things. Uh, and then the after, um, maybe it's reenacted. Let's act out this story, or let's tell. Let's come up with ten questions about what we've read. Um, your opinion of it. Why do? Where did you get that? Why do you think that? So that you're doing those same things as young as a child can have a little five or six page story. You can use those same strategies. And I think that's really important because the younger they learn them, Mm -hmm. the more experience they're going to gain over their lifetime. They're going to internalize it. It will be second nature, and they'll do these things all the way through. Yeah, and I think that's one of the important things we can do as parents is really help them see these strategies, see them in action, help us explain them. Because sometimes we take reading for granted in that way. We just like, oh, you if you can decode the words, if you can decode the text, you're finding meaning, you're finding understanding. But that is usually far from the truth. It really is, unfortunately. Yes, we think because we can say the words and... You know, I call it bark at print, say every word and turn every page that we understand. So 
as we close up here, what what is one of those things that you just think brings great joy to children? What how can we help them find that joy and love of reading? A good book makes a good reader. Find the good books. Find the ones that capture their interest. Know what that child is interested in and go to all ends to find books that will do that. Of course, they also need to not just focus on what they love because that's not going to be school. Oh, I don't – that's boring. I don't want to learn that, so I'm not going to. No. And so throw in random things. Throw in things they've never heard of. Uh, Open the world to them through books. Uh, Librarians are God's gift to loving to read. Well, thank you. (laughs) I like librarians too. (laughs) Perfect. Thank you so much for your time today, Marnie. Marnie Isaacson is a literacy expert. Now, join me around the librarian's table as I talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life at the library. Today, I'm in studio with Christy Kirkland from Provost Elementary School to talk about what's hot with children's books. I am very excited to chat today about what's hot. So, yes, what's hot? I mean, that's the fundamental question of today. What is hot with all of your students? So first describe for us the school that you're at and give us a little context and then then let's let's find out what's hot. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay, I am from Provost Elementary in Provo, Utah, and I teach library there and kindergarten through sixth grade. Let's see, my kindergartners and my first graders love Mo William books. Oh. Those are the elephant and piggy books. <laughs> yes. They yes. are easy enough for them to read, and I love doing voices for them. So that's oh, why oh, they okay. like them, can and you, the can kids you, can mimic you do, the voices. Can you do your elephant and piggy voice Usually for us? Usually if I had the book in front of me, like, <laughs> piggy's very high. Like, he'll be like, I want that ball, you know? And elephant's down low, <laughs> and he's very kind of slow. So they love mimicking the voices, yeah. and, so when, and it's easy to memorize. So they feel like they can read it by themselves. Yeah. So they've always loved Elephant and Piggy. And I love Elephant and I'm Piggy. A, you know, that is one of the things I love about Mo Willems and Elephant and Piggy in particular is it's one of those kinds of books that reaches all generations, right? Because they are just such classic, beautiful characters that adults can love. But they have that wonderful child sensibility that kids just, they they see themselves in those characters. And we as adults can see the children in those characters. And they're just delightful. And I, I love the way he uses words and, and you know, just, just a, the right touch of humor. I know, they always text. bust out laughing. Yeah, it's yeah, so much fun. Yeah, I, yeah. So, okay. Those are hot. Those are hot. Co- definitely any, hot. Any, kind of, any yes. kind of situation. Now, if you get into <laughs> yeah. a little bit older, so you're talking like second, third grade, yeah. you're looking at the bad guys books, if you've ever heard yes, of those. Yes. Very, very popular. Yes. Eerie Elementary is another good one. And these are for the emergent. These are transitional books is what I yeah. call them. So going from picture books into those chapter books. So they're very friendly because they still have pictures, but they're longer and they have fewer words. And it's part graphic novel, which I think is fabulous because that helps kids decode those words so that it reads easier for them and they know what's going on so they don't feel so lost. Um, 
They also really like the Dragon Masters series. Oh, that's a really great one, that's too. That's a good one. Yeah, that's a great one. And then if you go a little bit harder up into fourth, fifth grade, then you get The Last Kids on Earth. That has become really which popular Which is a really popular recently. book. And, yes. And I am still, as an adult and a critic, trying to figure out what it is that that book is appealing. So can you articulate that for me? From I think your it's again because it's combining the graphic novel with That's the novel. True. So it's a That's transitional true. book. And it's kids overcoming these huge monsters, right? They're That's the true. only ones left. Yeah. So you have these powerful kid characters, which every child wants to feel powerful. Yeah. And so they see that in themselves yeah. as well. Yeah. that That is one of those books for me that shows that sometimes there's a difference between what adults enjoy and what kids enjoy. And that's totally fine, too. I mean, there's the Mo Willems of the world that everybody enjoys. And then there's some that, you know, they're very kid friendly. Um, you know, Captain Underpants is that way for me too, right? That kind of combo graphic novel. As an adult, I'm, I really don't appreciate Captain Underpants, but kids really do. And Last Kids on Earth is the same way for me. I, I can understand why kids love it and the adventure and the excitement of it. But as an adult, it's just not it's not quite my it's cup not of tea. Your cup. But <laughs> if it totally gets your fine. kids totally reading, fine. oh yes, totally. and your kids are enjoying it and totally. they're laughing, worth it. Totally. And so. I, yeah, I cannot, I cannot agree with that statement more because there are certain things we just need to get kids reading, and that book in particular has got kids reading mm -hmm. that weren't readers before. That yeah. one, and then if you look at Amulet, mm -hmm. which is a graphic novel, mm -hmm. kids yeah. love Hilo, another graphic yeah. novel. You know, and then. Yeah. Dogman, which yeah, is also not yeah. my favorite, but they love it. Yeah, you know, so yeah. if it's getting them reading and they're laughing and they're yeah. experiencing it, they see reading as more than just a homework assignment. They see it as something enjoyable. And anytime you can get a kid reading and build their imagination, yeah. it's worth it. Like uh, yeah. whatever you can get, you know, that's <laughs> yeah. what they need yeah. right now. Yeah. But as you get older, let's see, my older kids, they really are into like my fifth and sixth graders are really into the Brandon Sanderson young Great. adult novels. Very cool. So like cool. the Stillheart series. Yeah. That's my upper readers. And then yeah. Skyward just came out. Fabulous book. I know. I loved that I book. Know. Okay. In all so. honesty, Skyward is like my favorite of the Brandon Sanderson books. That I mean, one is? Yes. Oh, I'm so excited the next one comes out oh, this year. I know. I, I just, Such I'm a good so, book. So, so interested where it's going to go. That's, that's yeah. all I'll say about that. <laughs> yeah. And then I have a bunch of sixth graders that, that are really into like World War II books. So historical cool. fiction. So they're Very reading cool. like Making Bombs for Hitler, Project 1065 by Alan Grant, yes. if you know that author. Yeah, I do. Yes. And so those are some really, really good ones. Because sixth grade does focus on World War II. They, they're learning this history. So yeah. having these fictional books based on real events is really good for them yeah. to open their eyes to kind of what it was like emotionally that's really for them. Cool. So that's, that's those really, go fast. I, I like that kind of sense because I think sometimes when we look at particularly what's hot for kids, we go to the fantasy or the graphic novels and that type of thing. But we forget that for some kids, what's hot is like historical fiction or even nonfiction. I mean, I had some kids... That that was all they read. Was Most of my boys love nonfiction, yeah. so they'll they'll go for the reptile books, the dinosaur books, yeah. the space books. They also love the graphic novels. In fact, <laughs> yeah. I have a group. I just bought a bunch of. There's some um, sports graphic novels now. Oh, very cool. That focus on like soccer or football and explain the rules very... of the game and then have a story along with it in a graphic novel. Yeah. So I had a bunch of boys that did not want to read, and I got those. And now they are reading everything. So there you go. I <laughs> they love, love it. I love the format of graphic novels because it is so diverse in that way that there's nonfiction, that there's 
every genre, right? I mean, you can right. find a graphic novel for for anything for anybody. Mm-hmm. So yeah, well, that's quite an eclectic mix that your yes. students are reading. I love it. So. In in that vein, though, what's hot with you? What, what are you reading that's hot? <laughs> what am I reading? I actually have, anytime I get a book into the library, I read it first to make sure it's appropriate for my kindergarten through sixth graders. And then, so right now I'm reading a bunch of the World War II books. I just finished yeah. Skyward, which I loved. Yes, yes. And I finished Legion. That's also by Brandon yeah. Sanderson. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Those are my most recent reads. I'm reading one that's not for elementary kids right now. Well, you can recommend it to our audience. So <laughs> I'm only partway through it, so I don't know how much I like it yet. It's a historical fiction from World War II called We Are the Lucky Ones. Oh, okay. I've heard of it. So, yeah. And it does have some language and stuff in it. So it but would not be for kids. Yeah, so it would book. be an adult book. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's cool. It, it's nice that you have such eclectic readers in your school. And it sounds like you're an eclectic reader yourself. Well, yeah. And I tell my kids, well, my students, you know, if you find a book and you don't like it, put it down and pick up another one and then yeah. see how many books. So our challenge this year was to find how many books we could love because there's a book for everybody. Such a great And so challenge. they're collecting books that they love and writing them down so that they can see all these different types of books that they actually love that they didn't know they loved. That is an amazing challenge. And I love that approach because it kind of takes it away from minutes or sheer numbers into something that makes reading a joy. So kudos for that. (laughs) I love that approach. That's amazing. So hopefully one of uh, our listeners out there has heard a title that they may be their new love and they can put on that fabulous list of books they love. Thank you so much. And if not, look for another one. Yeah, I know. Pick up another one. Pick up another one and keep trying. That's what libraries are for, right? You walk in, you try one, there's another one right next to it that may be the book for you. Right. I love it. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank Kirsty for joining me around the librarian's table. We've had a great show today. We talked with Steve Graham about new forms of writing. Then we talked with author Ariane de Beauvoisin about her journey to become a writer. Our last interview was with literacy expert Marnay Isaacson, and we chatted about reading habits. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Sarah Byington, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us. Mm-hmm.